Hello and welcome to this edition of the EV Revolution Show audio podcast. With your host, Kenneth Bacor. This is episode 24, recorded on May 7, 2021. This episode of the EV Revolution Show is sponsored by File Sanctuary. Need a great web host for your business? Need to get email at yourdomain.com? They provide professional, feature-rich web and email hosting for any project you have in mind. Get started today at filesanctuary.net forward slash cloud and save 10% with promo code EVREVSHOW. All right, and welcome to this edition of the EV Revolution Show audio podcast. My name is Kenneth Bocor, as you heard, your host. Appreciate you taking the time out of your busy schedules to listen to my podcast, which I feel, you know, are always pretty good because I bring on exciting and smart people uh, to talk about the EV marketplaces place from a different angle. And today I'm, I'm really stoked and excited to have somebody, a representative from a very large organization here in Canada that I that I know can resonate to other parts of the world quite easily. I have um, Mr. Angelo DiCaro. He's the Uniforce Director of Research. How are you, Angelo? I'm great, Ken. How are and you doing? Great, and hopefully I pronounced your name right because we oh, didn't did. do a dry run on that. So perfect. <laughs> and perfect. my my listeners and viewers know I'm terrible with names. So in pronunciations of foreign words, I get so much flack all the time. You said Mercedes instead of Mercedes. Okay, whatever. Anyway, it is what it's all it good. is, right? It's all good. It's perfect. Well, thank you very much for taking the time to join me. I you know I think this is a very interesting time to have this conversation with, with yourself and your organization. Now you you uh, work for Unifor. And for those who don't know, Unifor is Canada's largest private sector union, and you have more than 315,000 members across the country and working in every major sector in the Canadian economy. Um, you know, your missions are bringing a moderate approach to unionism. So good union's not a bad word here in Canada. Adopting new tools, involving and engaging your members and always looking for new ways to develop the roles and approach for the union to meet the demands of the 21st century. Love it. It's a great, great story here. You know, I know I know you guys from the CAW days, right? That's kind of where I you know, kind of know that. But it's, it's much more than that. Can you tell me a little bit more? Sure. Yeah. Uh, so Unifor was uh, was a product of um, a merger of two uh, large uh, private sector unions in Canada, the CAW, as you say, the uh, Auto Workers Union, and uh, a union of uh, called the Communications, Energy, and Paper Workers Union. So it was a, it was an interesting time in 2013 when the two unions came together, uh, really uh, complementing one another in terms of the coverage of workers uh, across industries in Canada, um, uh, formed what's become, I would argue, maybe the most influential labor organization in Canada right now, uh, very active politically, very active in the collective bargaining uh, sphere, um, uh, with, a, with a very broad mandate uh, of not just servicing members, but really bringing a, a social component to, to unionism in Canada, advocating for progressive ideals, uh, tackling big issues like climate change, for mm -hmm. one, which I know is a topic we'll, we'll be getting into here. So it's about building our economy and how, how do workers have a voice at that table and how we build a, a constructive economy, a fair economy. That, that was Unifor's uh, mandate. And I like to think, you know, eight years down the line of, of this new union that uh, if we haven't accomplished some of our goals, we're, we're certainly moving in the right direction. Well, you guys have been very active, especially over the last several months. I mean, it, it, almost a week goes by when I don't see Jerry out in the field, yeah. you know, with a microphone stuck in front of his face saying something about something. So, and most of it automotive related. Just to just to put your union in perspective, can you just quickly, uh, for listeners, I, I, I'm not sure what the biggest union in Canada is. I was thinking maybe CUPE, but I could be wrong there. Can you tell me like the top three or four? Yeah, well, you've got uh, a large uh, group of public sector unions. Uh, CUPE is the largest, very active union, and uh, and that that's a product of the of the size, the growing size of Canada's public sector. Uh, mm -hmm. uh, important public services. Unifor does represent workers in the public sector, just yeah. on balance, not as many in the private sector. 
So you've got two stories playing out uh, in uh, in the economy, and I guess that just sort of translates into into the unions. Is uh, we're seeing uh, you know uh, troubles, I guess, when it comes to maintaining uh, collective bargaining rights within the private sector. There's been a fairly steady decline over the last uh, decades, number of decades uh, of this, and uh, I guess it's representative of an economy where we're, uh, you know, on, on the goods producing side, the manufacturing mm-hmm. side, uh, we're much more vulnerable to seeing manufacturing jobs shipped elsewhere, uh, moving overseas, and then uh, Canada, uh, you know, re-importing products that we used to build here. Right. That's a very simplified way of, of explaining mm-hmm. it, but, but it's, there's a lot of truth to it. And, uh, and so with those added pressures has, has you know, come some, some challenges and the declining size of private sector unions. But yeah, you've got CUPE, you've got various provincial uh, uh, public sector unions uh, as well. Uh, and then you've got us as, as sort of the lead horse. But there's mm-hmm. other unions as well sure. doing private sector work, steel workers and others. Yeah, where that. And you jogged a good memory. And before we get kind of focusing into the EV side of things, um, you know, what's your thought with the new administration in the U.S. I mean, we, we're so linked at the hip with the United States economy that, you know, there's always a ripple effect no matter what they do. We are independent. We try to you know do our own things. But as you mentioned about some of the jobs, you know, going overseas, I mean, they've experienced the same thing. You know, they're trying to do, and a lot of countries are doing that. And for some cases, it makes sense depending on what that is. But how do you see the, how positive are you with the new U.S. administration that is that is in place now? you know, and, and the new revised NAFTA or whatever the heck it's called again now, I forget. What's your sense that that's going to do to, to help drive the Canadian economy? It's a yeah. big question, well, I mean, so. No, it is. <laughs> yeah. It is. Um, <clears throat> you, you know, there's no denying uh, uh, the, the very close connection that we have with the, with the U.S. economy. It, it's, a, it's a product of, uh, of things outside our control, geography. Mm-hmm. It's you know it's learning to live beside someone <laughs> who yeah. who is uh, much larger, a big much gorilla, yeah. than you, and <laughs> you know it, it affects how you how you do your policy. It it affects a lot of a lot of things. You know, um, so so yeah, so as the U.S. economy goes, especially in industries that uh, rely heavily on uh, on on a trade that they're they're it's cross border dependence like auto there are others as well mm-hmm. uh what they do matters to us a great deal and that's why i you know i'd say the last you know 5 years uh going back into the trump administration you know i think they identified some of the challenges that have been bubbling up for for many decades, uh, the, the loss of jobs, this uh, this sense of unfair trade, and and so forth, um, and, and they tried to find ways to approach it. And uh, Trump took a sledgehammer approach to this issue. Mm-hmm. And despite the close connection with Canada, and despite that Canada really wasn't the problem that they were trying to trying to you know they, they were identifying, and we weren't the problem <laughs> they were trying to tackle. We just got caught in the crossfires and in a product of of how it was kind of a them versus us uh, uh, mentality. And, uh, you know, the auto sector was was vulnerable to that in Canada. I never could imagine a U.S. administration threatening to impose tariffs on the auto sector, for instance, uh, uh, for whatever reason. So so we, we dodged a bullet on that one because uh, there was no real uh, irreversible damage that, that happened. But mm-hmm. the new Biden administration seems to be taking a much more conciliatory approach uh, to how we build a North American supply chain, uh, focusing on the transition in the auto sector. So these are all good signs. But at the same time, you know, we always have to be cautious. We we can't rely on the U.S. for everything. We have uh, sovereignty in Canada. We can build an economy if we choose. Mm-hmm. And and I think uh, part of what we we learned through the Trump experience was that it doesn't matter how friendly an administration in the U.S. is going to be to us, or how we how friendly we think they're being to us. Uh, we have to take our own uh, control of our own destiny where we can. And so uh, it, it opens up a door to, yeah, what this EV transition is going to look like. I think that is a, a real uh, uh, important piece of that larger conversation. Absolutely. You know, great response to that. And, you know, we'll, we'll, we could go for hours at that and continue to pick that apart and talk about a high level global economics and everything. But what I'd like to do is start drilling down 
to what the listeners are kind of, you know, uh, interested in, which is the EV marketplace. But at first, you know, point is we need to let people know how significant the auto manufacturing and the supply chain for auto industry is in Canada. Can you describe that? Sure. Yeah. Well, uh, see, how, auto, how important of a player are we? I guess a lot of people may not know, especially overseas. So. Absolutely. Well, uh, from two angles, one is mm-hmm. just the, the, the importance of the auto sector in Canada as an economic driver, specifically mm-hmm. in, in central Canada. I mean, uh, the, the auto industry is one of those industries that we, we refer to as having a very significant multiplier effect in the economy, mm-hmm. where, you know, uh, th- this is an industry that, uh, that just by, by the nature of its production, the complexity of the products that it builds that it fosters very long uh, supply chains. And uh, that means that, you know, the the general view is that for every one uh, job in an assembly plant uh, on the line, that would represent uh, 10 other jobs throughout the economy. So that's a significant contribution to the the economic makeup of of Canada. And, And that's why the governments all over the world clamor for these investments, because it's not just about the car that's being built. It's about right. all of the economic benefits that spill over. And thanks to uh, decades of, of unionization, collective bargaining, you know, workers themselves have fought to make sure that these jobs are good jobs. They're high-paying mm-hmm. jobs for the most part. They've got benefits. They've got pensions available. Um, uh, it's been a struggle to maintain that uh, mm-hmm. because of competitive pressures. But overall, you know, the, these are very good jobs still. And so we need this. And I think, you know, loose, loosely speaking, got about 120,000 workers in the auto sector, parts, assembly, body and trailer. And then, uh, uh, you know, overall, you, you multiply that. We're looking at well over half a million jobs. Not all of those jobs are in assembly, right. which is why you can't just multiply it all by 10. Uh, but the, the fact is that, you know, the spill off is about half a million jobs in Canada, which is which is critical, critical for the economy. So yeah, that said, th- yeah. th- that's one area. I'm sorry. Go ahead. I was just going to say, there's not many uh, economic sectors that you can make a one, you know, an investment of one and get ten back. You know, in, in yeah. general, right? It's a absolutely it's a pretty unique return on that marketplace. Yeah, you got it. You got mm-hmm. it. Well, so I, I mean, and apart from that, we have to understand Canada's the 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 economic weight that the auto industry has in Canada with respect to other jurisdictions in the world. And I mean, at one point, uh, this is widely stated, widely known. Canada was among the top five auto-producing nations in the world. Mm. Now, we, we were punching well above our weight, and, and that was, mm-hmm. again, a product of our relationship with the U.S. It was a product of our skills and ingenuity and our, our you know, all of that, the, 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 the robust infrastructure for building cars here. And then uh, for the same reasons that uh, we talked about earlier, um, you know, uh, the, the rest of the world caught on, uh, you know, they, they used auto to pivot their own industrial development strategies. They found ways of doing it cheaper. They found ways of doing it, uh, you know, with their own suite of policies domestically. Mm-hmm. And that added new competitive pressures in Canada. And we've fallen tremendously in terms of our output capacity in the auto sector. So, uh, you know, we, we've gone from number five to somewhere down in the mid-teens now. Um, which, you know, again, these are just numbers, but it's, it's telling, it's symbolic yeah. of, of, um, of an industry that we should not let, let go from our grasp. If we've got it, we have to build it and harness it. We've taken too much of a lax approach to how mm-hmm. we do it. And, and really that's, that's the approach that's carried us forward up until about last year. And, uh, and, and some exciting things happened last year around EVs that, uh, that really got us looking more towards the future. Yeah. Um, and let's get into that. I, I, I did want to add a comment you mentioned about, you know, how we were top five and now we've slipped. And, and I'm, I'm guessing it's more for economic reasons um, versus a quality or the abilities that we have in Canada to produce a fine product. An example that came to mind where you were talking about that was uh, I remember the old um, Hyundais when they first came out with the pony and these kind of cars. So I'm dating myself. Um, you know, put some duct tape in it, kept going kind of thing, but they weren't the greatest cars. And now when you look at that organization, as an example, uh, Hyundai Kia being, being basically all one, the quality of the work is just, it's really high end. I mean, for, for economy and, and for the price, the market price cars that they have, and they have high end cars. But I, I think if I'm not mistaken, they, when they first came to Canada, they wanted to really up the the, quality, the quality, so they opened up, a, they built a plant in Quebec. Um, I think it was St. 
Tourist or something in Quebec. I'm not sure. Um, and if, if I recall, you know, they were starting to build whatever platforms out of there and people were saying, wow, the quality is, is like 10, 10 X what it was before. Um, so whether I've got my geography wrong, but I think the point is, you know, can it, we know how to build vehicles and we know how to build them very well. So it's not just the Japanese that are building really high quality, uh, vehicles that you can drive, but we can do it and we can do it well and we can do it at a fair price. Yeah, I, I don't know about the Hyundai uh, uh, Kia uh, Quebec uh, uh, experience. So uh, it was many years ago up. when they first. Yeah, you know. But but you're mm-hmm. right. I mean, uh, yeah, it's uh, it's a place uh, to. It's you know not only a place where uh, you know Canada. I'm speaking. Mm-hmm. Uh, we we can build good cars. We, we've attracted foreign investment in the in right. the name of uh, you know Toyota and Honda, mm-hmm. and so they're situated here. And mm-hmm. in, in a lot of ways, they're the ones that are are generating the highest volumes of production coming out of Canada. And I think again, it's Canada, you know, using its strategic advantage as a as a, a, a high value place to build quality cars to service the North American market, which typically is how uh, companies decide to cite their investments as they mm-hmm. look at it. Not that you're going to build a plant in Canada because you're going to source, uh, uh, you know, dealerships out in South Korea. Um, it's that you're doing this because you're trying to feed a, a large and growing North American market. So if we can attract those investments uh, into Canada, uh, you know, you build that capacity yeah. and you give them high quality jobs. That, that's a that's a strong recipe for for success. And we've seen that we mm-hmm. just we haven't really harnessed it to take full advantage. You know, so. Yeah, absolutely correct. And and I'm glad you keep saying North America because the Canadian market, we're really small by comparison to other parts of the world. I mean, we are. You know, I think two million, two million uh, new vehicles is a good day, you know, a good year for Canada that's probably a couple of weeks in California or whatever, right, of sales. So we do have to put this in perspective because it is a big market. I would would like to continue drilling down now, and you were segueing to the EV side. So that's great because there's been lots of announcements in Canada about uh, the, you know, even taking plants that were, that, potentially were being shut down or going or moved to an offline basis now reinvigorating them with the opportunity to build either components or full vehicles in the EV marketplace you know GM being one of them where again you know I, I lean on them because they've just been so active in the news in the last several months with what they've been coming out with they're all in you know changing their brand logo you know is a big deal a lot of people don't see that but I saw that as a big deal it's a you know it's a big step you know Ford uh, committing now you know, taking their heritage brand Mustang and, you know, the first all uh, electric new design platform and naming it a Mustang. Boy, they got flack for that. But I think that was a, such a strong move. You know, it took, took some cojones to do that, right? Um, you know, you've got um, other uh, people with marquee brands, you know, and the F-150 as well, that they're going to fully electrify that. Again, their number one selling vehicle globally, you know, was the number one globally in 2019, uh, I think in 2020, it's either the Toyota RAV4 or the Corolla. I, I kind of see, you know, mixed numbers globally, but Toyota took over top OEMs with VW second. But so you've got these automakers who've been around for, you know, a century or more with some key brands and some key visuals of what they're about. And they are embracing electrification and making that move. What does that mean for the Canadian marketplace? What, what are you guys going to see? Yeah. Or see? Well, yeah. For sure. No, uh, that's a great question. Mm-hmm. Um, y- y- you know, uh, I guess, what are you seeing today? Let's start with present tense or, and then we can talk about futures. Yeah. Sure. Sure. Well, yeah. I mean, so in, in terms of, uh, of, of those, uh, the Detroit three, um, mm-hmm. in terms of their plans moving forward, I mean, I'll back up a second sure. say that, you know, if it was, uh, you asked me this question, maybe two years ago, I probably would have given you a, a decidedly different answer. Uh, <laughs> you would have stared at me for a bit going, what? <laughs> optimistic I was about yeah. where this was all going. We, I mean, we've never wavered on the fact that Canada uh, was a place that uh, that should be in line for this uh, renaissance of, of auto manufacturing. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, it, it just seemed like we were we were suffering under the weight of decades of of disinvestment and plant closures. And my goodness, that... That uh, that announcement, um, uh, I, I, if I recall, the days and years seem to be bleeding into each other now. But <laughs> 2019, 2018, GM uh, really pulling the plug on Oshawa mm-hmm. um, was was it was a symbolic, like almost a death knell 
of of the industry in Canada and uh and so this really got our union uh, ramped up to fight and we're not going to mm-hmm. let a critical plant go down you know quietly and uh and and kudos to Jerry kudos to us and all the work that was done to retain the integrity of that plant mm-hmm. and then fast forward a couple of years um I think with some some really uh uh you know good bargaining uh, some some strong advocacy some good collaboration uh, we built a business case to say why we're going to build these cars here. And uh, so so now what we're dealing with is rather than staring at the precipice of a of an industry that's soon to to be dismantled fully, following like, you know, the, the, the examples of Australia, where, you know, they just completely lost all their assembly yes. capacity. Yeah. Um, we're now looking at uh, a situation of, of we're talking about full plant retooling in Oakville. We're going to see uh, the first ever passenger vehicle, all-electric uh, facility uh, in Canada. Um, we've seen uh, accelerations in, in the future of, of the Cami Automotive Facility from GM, mm-hmm. building these new commercial vans. Out we've in got Ingersoll. Stellantis. Yep, mm-hmm. yep. yep. Mm-hmm. Uh, through Bright Drop in mm-hmm. Ingersoll, that's, that's right. right. We, we see Stellantis, which is, is the one that kind of gets lost in the shuffle here, yeah, but maybe the most exciting where uh, the projection is for a new architecture that can build... Uh, passenger cars, SUVs, and, uh, and and other other models on one platform that can be either a battery electric or hybrid. Mm-hmm. It's remarkable. And that will bring back 2,000 jobs off of the third shift that was, that was lost earlier. So not only are we seeing this uh, Canada now becoming a, a flashpoint in the Renaissance movement in North mm-hmm. America, we're, we're leading the way. But we're seeing workers who were very down on the future of the industry now thinking like this is actually a forward looking industry in Canada. It's exciting. And uh, my goodness, I, to, to think we'd be here at this point, I never would have put money down on that. But but this is the reality we're, we're in now, right now. It's very exciting. Yeah, you know, that's fantastic to hear. And I know when you're talking about Stellantis, we're, we're, we're focusing more mostly on the Windsor situations, the plants there uh, that FCA, you know, runs, uh, that division of Stellantis runs. Uh, so there's, you know, lots of jobs going on, um, which I think is fantastic. So you are you are confirming then what we're hearing publicly from these OEMs. And, and when I say OEMs, I'm again talking about the Detroit 3 and some others, you know, the Toyotas and the Hondas of the world as well you're actually seeing them put that money. So they say, you know, we're, we're putting $2 billion investments here and a billion dollar here. And then VW, of course, and doing all this stuff, but you're starting to see that, right? You're that's filtering into real jobs, into real retooling, into stuff coming online where employ where employees that, as you said, were saying, what is my future now going, Hey, this is great. I'm loving it. So, and you're actually seeing that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we can talk more about the uh, the, the the effects of the of these investments too, because yeah, because a, a lot of people think a, a I bring that up, Angela, right? only because I, I say that a lot, and then I get comments going, "Wow, you know, they're just full of hot air, right?" GM well, has been saying this for five years, and VW with this, but yeah. and, you know, I, I I've been defending literally VW for five years, <laughs> ever since they started. You know, after Dieselgate, they knew they had to do a one eighty. We got to go completely the other way in a green mode. And they started saying it and people going, they're bonkers. They're never going to do anything. And look at them. I mean, you know, I know they're not yeah. up here with any manufacturing, but, you know, that they, they, they are retooling uh, the Chattanooga plant to to yeah. take on the ID4. And they're going to get all these other plants. Yes, they go into Mexico and stuff. So that's another thing. But but it's happening. So, yeah. sorry, I just wanted to say, you know, that's the reason I'm asking that question is because you're you're the one that can confirm whether stuff is happening or not. You're, no, absolutely, and uh, and so I'll 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 say something about about the uh, the actual delivery of the investments, mm-hmm. and then I'll say something about the uh, the the effect of this transition on on workers. So, mm-hmm. um, yeah, absolutely. Uh, so one thing to make sure uh, folks are aware of is um, you know we've got these investments, these big announcements that kind of came like a tidal wave over the course of five months uh, between 2020 and early 2021. Uh, they're happening at different times. So, so they're all on their own sort of uh, trajectory right now. The yep. one that's moved the fastest is General Motors in Ingersoll. And mm-hmm. so that, uh, that plant retooling is happening. The, the expectation is these new commercial vans will be, you know, uh, coming down very quickly. Well, they've got big and, orders uh, already, right? They got pre-orders. That's right. They've got things, their orders. So, yeah. mm-hmm. You're exactly right. And then further to that, although not EV related, but the commitment to reopen General Motors in Oshawa 
um, and the trucks that are going in there. Just the announcement yesterday with uh, GM announcing that that's that that timeline is being accelerated. They're going to be mm-hmm. doing this towards the end of this year, um, which is faster than we originally thought. So, the, the, in that case, the money's coming in, the investments are happening, and workers are, are getting back to work doing this stuff. Uh, with respect to Ford, uh, this is further out on the line. We're looking at 2026 as the first mm-hmm. model year for these cars, which will so be a Lincoln still product. Have a long way to go. Sorry, will it be a Lincoln product or will it be a different? Product? We don't know. Sure, we, right? we we don't know yet. All we know mm-hmm. is is what they they refer to kind of as top hats. So it's mm. d- different kind of uh, uh, nameplates on the on the car. We don't exactly know yet, but we're guessing. <laughs> so, mm-hmm. uh, but we're looking a few years out, and Stellantis in Windsor. Um, is looking somewhere in between that. 2023, we should be seeing this architecture built. So uh, yes, in some cases, and still to come in others, the good news is that with the federal government and provincial governments ponying up money Mm. to get that Ford transition happening, much less likely that they'll be able to pull the plug on that. So this is is helpful stuff. Um, Now, on workers, I mean, one of the things I'll point out, we can get into this more after, Mm -hmm. but you know, uh, when we're transitioning to, to EVs, it's it's very important to realize that on the assembly side, the people who are putting the cars together on the line, um, very little difference in terms of the job requirements, the skills. Uh, in some cases, like Ford Oakville, we're bringing battery pack assembly into the plant. So mm-hmm. that's going to be a whole new division that we never, we don't currently have. So, so th- that's a good news story, a pretty seamless transition. Mm-hmm. By the way, I'm glad you bring the, bring that up because a lot of people think com- building EVs because they have less parts, they're less complex. It's going to take away jobs. So on the assembly side, exactly yes. right. It, mm-hmm. It's it's not a not a tremendous difference. There are mm-hmm. some things, but not sure. not not huge. The challenge is going to be in the supply chain, mm-hmm. and it's going to be on on those suppliers that feed into uh, internal combustion engines. Right. Um, those products are very complex. They're, like some numbers I've seen is like, you know, you're looking at 1400 individual products going into an engine. Yep. And in the case of an electric motor, we're talking about like 200 products <laughs> and batteries are a whole other thing altogether. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it, 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 the, the disruption that we're anticipating is going to come on the powertrain side of this uh, more than it is on the assembly. And so that is something that's got uh, us and it's got workers in powertrain and and those suppliers, you know, excited about the possibilities, but also a bit nervous about, you know, how quickly we're going to move to get these other pieces phased out. There are tens of thousands of jobs that are attached to this uh, component of the industry. And we better be managing this properly or or we're going to see not only you know, potentially tremendous job losses, but blowback from people saying, you know what, I'd rather have the job than I'd rather have the EV. We don't need that. We need all of this happening in synchronicity if we're going to tackle the problem ahead of us. Absolutely. And those jobs, as you mentioned, are worldwide. It's not just a North American thing. Absolutely. You know, the Germans are invested, the Japanese are invested, all, you know, most of Europe now has car manufacturing capabilities. China, of course, a huge market there, India. I mean, it goes on and on. So, you know, these are definitely challenges. Now, in your opinion, then, you said that um, they're also excited about the opportunity. What's the reality of that opportunity for these supply chain uh, workers? Where do you think they can go? What, what are those options? Or do well, we know it? You know, I'll, yeah, absolutely. I'll, mm-hmm. I'll tell you. Um, I mean, um, th- there's a couple of things that are that are going to have to happen here. And, and it starts, well, at first it starts with getting the footprints of the assembly. That's like the, it's like the planetary, <laughs> like the gravitational pull of a planet is when you right. have an assembly plant. It, it generates all this spillover activity uh, nearby. So, so that's happening and, uh, more can happen. You know, we're looking at Toyota and Honda. Hopefully they've got transition plans in the place as well. Hopefully they're a new, bit slow, uh, but they're starting to come out of the show. A bit slow, but mm-hmm. yeah, that's right. And, and frankly, with the new, um, you know, you referenced it, the new trade agreement, the, the Kusma or USMCA or whatever you want to call it. Um, you know, there's added incentive for, uh, foreign investors and automakers to set up shop in North America in order mm-hmm. to meet these new stringent rules of origin for tariff-free trade. So mm-hmm. there, there's things working in our favor. So that, that's got to continue. But in terms of ad- addressing where the disruption will happen, I mean, there's a couple of things. There, there, there's one piece to say that, you know, we need to identify some of these vulnerable uh, suppliers and find ways of encouraging them to transition their production 
so that if you're not building a component for an ICE engine, maybe you could be building that component for an electric motor or some other component um, in the supply chain. That's very Pollyannish, believe me, mm -hmm. I know. Mm -hmm. But but these are important uh, lines to be drawn between the dots that have to happen if we're going to manage the transition properly. The second part of it is saying, well, there's all this new capacity that we don't do in Canada, like manufacturing cells, like manufacturing precursor materials that are the second stage after mining mm -hmm. for a cobalt and lithium to mm -hmm. get ready for battery production. We don't do that much in Canada. So we're going to have to onboard more capacity. And we've done some analysis on this, and we've looked at a powertrain worker, a production worker. We've looked at a, a production worker at the Ultium battery facility in Lordstown. Mm -hmm. And frankly, on that range of, of, you know, the, of, of, the, of the job descriptions, there isn't much difference. Mm -hmm. And we could certainly be transitioning workers in powertrain to going into battery production. This can happen, but we have to do it in a way governments are going to have to be very involved and we're going to have to manage this properly. All to, as I said earlier, make sure that the industrial strategy component and the EV adoption component is happening in synchronicity. Correct. If we're going mm -hmm. offline, it just creates needless political problems that mm -hmm. you know, will certainly thwart some of these efforts, I, I fear. So. so going back to what I originally said earlier about um, if I did, I'm trying to remember now because we were talking offline. Uh, I just did a radio interview yesterday about the uh, ZEP mandate proposal in Canada. And I said, I don't think that that's going to be a negative for the auto manufacturers and the supply chain because it's just another way to help move forward that marketplace with, you know, government backing. And, you know, because part of that is incentives to consumers to help drive the sales and things like that. So what you just described seems to just kind of confirm all that, that if we can manage it in parallel or in, in synchronicity, as you said, um, and I agree, I think the battery side of things, the, that whole process for battery packs is if, if there's going to be and if there is any weak link in the supply chain, it's that because we haven't hit the demand yet that we expect for EVs. Like give it another four or five years, mid mid yeah. decade. My goodness, you know, people are going to really start looking instead of maybe one out of 20 people get an EV or right now, I think Canada, we finished at three and a half percent. I mean, there's no reason to say why we wouldn't be at 10 or even maybe you know 20 percent by the decade or more of EV adoption. So. Um, the demand's going to be there for the for the auto suppliers and the supply chain. Uh, do you agree with that? Yeah, th this is a it's a great uh, topic yeah. <laughs> on, on the ZEV mandates. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, I mean, I'll, I'll start by saying uh, there's a lot of things to say on this. Yeah. Um, you know, and I'm watching always, time, so yeah, I know. Yeah, yeah, it's always <laughs> tricky policy um, when uh, governments make commitments that are not going to be their problem. And <laughs> yeah. uh, they sort of punt these down the line. So, mm -hmm. I mean, ZEV mandates is just one example, but yep. there's so many. And so- But um, they do work though. Take... I think ZEV mandates work. It's proven in the States, right? The initial 13 or, or eight state uh, 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 pilot that they ran, you know, uh, they went from zero, pretty well zero EVs to over half a million a year in five or six years. So it does work if it's done right. Well, fair, and, and fair enough. I, I, I will say I'll add to that to say that, uh, you know, despite governments kind of punting this problem, mm -hmm. you know, to some other government down the line, making sure they meet these these standards or not. But our, our take on this, it, it, we're not cold to the idea. And mm -hmm. the industry is a little little shaky on on whether this is important. This is a, a, a useful or not. Mm -hmm. um, and so uh, we, we share their skepticism, but we think it can work. And for the reasons that you've explained and, and I've articulated that it has to happen not as a standalone policy. And, and that's where some of the examples of successful ZEV, ZEV mandate, it's not the ZEV mandate in and of itself that's been successful. you got to create the conditions right. that incubate the market so people can actually go. If you're telling people, come to the, come to the dealership, um, and guess what? Sorry, uh, you have to buy an EV, and it's going to cost you more money. And we don't have the charging infrastructure yet, but you're going to have to buy it anyways. People are going to not be happy with that with that sort of approach to the sales market. So right. these pieces all have to happen in tandem. And our our point um, is that if we can attach to that um, the development of the Canadian industry alongside, people will feel a sense that it's you know my job is connected to this mm -hmm. as opposed to just my you know me as a consumer. Uh, and if we can put all these pieces together in the right spot, I, I believe that a ZEV mandate could be very effective. 
But if we think that a Zev mandate just on its own is going to be enough to get people, well, you're forced to do it. I, markets don't work that way. And, and consumers don't behave that way. <laughs> and, uh, and the danger is that if you push too much, yeah. th- there could actually be a needless blowback that, again, a future government might say, this is a winning proposition for me as a politician. I'll fight off that Zev mandate because no one likes it. Yeah, That's exactly. a dangerous place to be. So we've sure. got to do this carefully. But we're not cold to the idea. I think it's a very Good. smart idea. Good to know. And, and I agree. It, it's it's a tool in the toolkit, right? If you use properly, Absolutely. it's a multiple uh, of, of impacts that it can provide. Um, and I agree. And again, read between the lines on this, you know, right now the proposal is by 2030. So it's not like tomorrow you're, you know, you're cut off from your internal combustion vehicles. And the OEMs have realistically, you know, nine and a half or eight and a half years to kind of ramp up to get to a point to have enough product, which I'm fully confident by the end of this Mm -hmm. decade. I mean, um, I don't know if we'll see the uh, if we'll see a shift to, you know, more buying EVs than ICE fees. But I mean, if if vendors and manufacturers are making less internal combustion vehicles by the end of the decade, then it's just just going to happen by by normalcy. Right. That's just the way it's going to be, you know. Part of what I think needs to be done in the consumer base is education, right? Because there's Mm -hmm. so much, you know, when I started doing the YouTube stuff uh, in 2016, I would ask, you know, if I were to go ask 10 people about an EV, I get one person say, well, it's that Tesla thing, right? They're EVs, right? And that maybe get that answer. And then now I probably maybe get three people that maybe, maybe four that know something. Oh, one's a Tesla. Oh, yeah, that Nissan Leaf or whatever, you know, I think it. So there is a bit more awareness, but we're still nowhere near where we need to be. Now, do you see the auto manufacturers um, kind of embracing the need for education and awareness? Because, you know, you walk, you walk into a dealership and they're not, most of them aren't forthcoming to say, hey, I've got this great EV over here. No, I've got this high margin pickup truck or SUV that you need to look yeah. at. Um, so do you foresee, uh, you know, the, the OEMs trying and the, the manufacturers helping that cause out at all? Yeah, that, that, that is a great point. Uh-huh. Uh, you know, I, I don't see how they get around it. Yeah. Um, uh, and, and I think, again, governments are, are going to have to play a role on this. Mm-hmm. It's a, there, There's this trade-off between like hands-off let them do what they want, uh, and and then they're steering them in a different direction. Mm-hmm. So I mean, we all four uh, governments, uh, you know, rolling out some some more comprehensive and and uh, strategic education program yeah. uh, for this. It's going to be needed. I would say though that where we're at now, it's um, uh, it's definitely in the awareness uh, phase for mm-hmm. them. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're pulling tons of money. Uh, into into PR efforts, yes. uh, GM probably leading the pack of the Detroit Three. Yeah. Um, Stellantis has got a lot of uh, catch up to do, I think, uh, and Ford somewhere in the middle. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of of uh, a, a steeper curve on this one for them. But you are a hundred percent right. If we're not all firing on the same cylinders, <laughs> we we just run the uh, we run the um, uh, the risk of this thing falling apart. And I, I did choose my pun carefully. So I know I, you did. I was just, <laughs> so I'm stickering here. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And, uh, you know, I'm, I, I was just saying the last week, I mean, I'm seeing so many all electric or electric vehicle ads now, you know, just everyday TV, you flip a channels and seeing an ad, Oh, there's another VW ad. Oh, there's a Hummer ad or like, wow, you know, like, or another GM ad, I mean, uh, with the uh, Altium. I mean, they really, I mean, well, two years ago, you, it'd be crickets, right? I mean, Tesla doesn't do advertising. Down. They don't do squats. So, um, yeah, they they really are, and more and more of that is happening, and I'm glad. And I think I agree with you. Now is the time to start creating that awareness, to start planting the seeds, right? You know, getting people interested in that product, because once you come out with them, then you'll have more compelling products. And I think, I want to get your opinion on this because I talked to some people about it and I was asked that question as well. How significant to the EV movement do you see the pickup truck market going to be? So once the F-150 comes out, we've got Rivian, you know, which is still a startup. So people are going to shake their heads a little bit. But when you get the big three substantiating that part of the market, you know, take Lordstown aside, take Rivian aside, take the Cybertruck aside, you know, it's the the darling of the industry, the, Mm -hmm. the eyeballs. But the reality is, 
there's a huge, a huge group of consumers that rely on a pickup truck for their use, you know, whatever that use case is, farming, you know, businesses and so many different applications for these, these body styles, you know, the uh, uh, um, frame on chassis, if I got that right, or the other way around, I forget how pickup trucks uh, generally, they're not unibodies, they're generally frame on body, if I've got that right. And so you can do so many different things with them. How much of an impact once those consumers start seeing good pickup trucks. Oh, I can still tow 10,000 pounds. I can still haul a payload of 1,200 or whatever. What do you, what do you think that impact's going to have? Yeah. yeah. I, I've always thought, um, uh, not, not that I have a crystal ball or anything mm-hmm. like that, no. but j- yep. just, you know, the nature of the market and, yep. uh, and consumers adoption of, of and the use of cars that the pickups are going to be the last on the line uh, of this transition, mm-hmm. uh, you know, in, in terms of adoption, and and I'll frankly, I mean, this is something that I I'm still trying to dig into. But even with existing uh, mandates that are in place, um, uh, it, it's always important to look at the fine print to see where heavy duty fits into this, because mm-hmm. a lot of it's focused on light duty, mm-hmm. and so yes. uh, you've got these these pickups that might be excluded in in, in small categories, of right? Uh, which could see a transition more. Uh, you know, from, from, you know, towards that end of the, of the market. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of stuff happening there. I would throw another one at you on this uh, is, is the sports car market, Mm -hmm. because uh, there is something very romantic about the sound of an engine roaring (laughs) as as I'm driving a challenger or, or, you know, and so how does the adoption of that admittedly more niche side of the market, but still pretty popular, still turns out quite, quite a number of volume. Mm -hmm. Um, how do those people adopt yeah. or, or is it completely anathema to why they're buying those cars? Um, no, I, I don't know, mm-hmm. but th- those two, those two uh, categories in mm-hmm. the market, mm-hmm. once the transition starts to happen and we're seeing more a- adoption of, of, uh, of sports cars, supercars and pickups, then I think we're at the, we're at the apex of the curve and then we're, we're heading, we're heading down. Well, we're seeing the supercar market almost weekly now. A new one is coming out by a manufacturer that's electrifying. So that's going on. I still that's consider good. that a small market, but it's it's a visibility yes. aspect. I get it. Yes. Pickup trucks we know are coming in full flurry over the next three to four years. Um, and once I think those consumers that have one uh, see what they can do with the pickup truck. So when you talk about putting a, a DC motor on every wheel and being able to instantaneously torque vector in any situation, I mean, just look at look at GM's crab walk kind of mechanism, you know, which is pretty cool and some of the things they can do with the electric motors and the steering. Uh, I think those users that are using it today are going to be pleasantly surprised because then they, well, as long as it's capable of me going to the job site, to the construction site and doing what I have to do, great and now by the way mr customer if you're going to keep this thing for eight years because the battery is going to last you at least that look at your total cost of ownership you're going to you're going to recoup whatever additional uh, monies you've paid because it's a higher price vehicle back in a few short years and your costs are going to be low so i think that story is going to bode very well on the uh, sports car yeah i mean I, i i'm not sure how big that market is i get it but i've done some car shows believe it or not with uh, I'm part of the uh, Electric Vehicle Society of Canada. And for those listening that want to get more inf- information, it's evsociety.ca, who are also lobbying and who are also involved in the ZEV mandate discussions with levels of government and stuff and working with manufacturers. Um, and we go to car shows and we were surrounded by, you know, uh, uh, Mopar and Fords and all this stuff. And I know I'm an old car guy, so I know this stuff. And these people come up to us like, why are you guys here? Well, the electric, electric cars is the future. Well, what good is it? Well, I get 350 foot pounds of torque instantly. What? You start talking torque to these people. And then if you can get them into the, uh, into the seat and let them try it, well, it changes the conversation. So yeah, you don't get the sound aspect, but you get the performance, you get the handling characteristics, as you know, Angela, with the low center of gravity and, and again, what you can do with traction control, depending on how that vehicle is, is uh, outfitted. Uh, it, it's a much different experience. I mean, I can't go a day without something popping up on YouTube where it's another Tesla drag racing somebody else. I mean, I don't watch them because there's too many, but who would have thought, you know, electric cars yeah. on a drag strip? Give me a break. So... I think there's a way to get rid of that. And also, though, we have to remember, and I tell my viewers all the time and listeners, that this transition isn't happening overnight. Like, whatever Tony Siba says about mid-decade, everybody's driving EVs, you know, I, I wish him luck with that. But the reality is, this is a decades transition, right? So internal combustion vehicles are going to be around for quite some time. 
Uh, EVs will eventually, at some point in time, be the dominant mode of consumer transportation, but that's not happening anytime soon. It's, it's, I would say, well into the 2030s, maybe even the 2040s, when we see that tipping point. You know, when we see, you probably know it better than I, Angelo, global uh, uh, light duty vehicle sales last year, I think were somewhere around 60, 70 million or something like that. It was a bit of a, a lower year than 2019 was. But, you know, nobody's building 40 million EVs a year today. Like we just, nobody's no. building that. And my last no. question, because I am keeping an eye on time, then I wanted to ask you this because you'll, you, you'll understand it. One of the concerns is the dealership model and, 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 and the way that they operate when it comes to EVs. Um, and I, and I don't, I, I'm wondering if they're open to change and if the OEMs are talking about it. And what I mean by that is, there's there's this sense of, you know, the more online, and maybe the COVID's helping, maybe the whole pandemic has helped this online order situation. So, you know, somebody asked me the other day, when you went into a dealership, uh, into a, and, and in this case, a Tesla dealership, or even Nissan, my first EV was a Nissan Leaf 2018. Uh, did you expect to walk out with that vehicle that afternoon? And I said, absolutely not. I just wanted to make sure I could have a test vehicle to drive so I could make sure it was the right vehicle and find out all the ins and outs about it. Um, I think that with internal combustion cars, it's a it's an opposite reaction. Unless you're going for something you know that's more customizable, you you oh I want I need a Corolla, and if I can find a red one with an you know mid level package, I'm fine. And most dealers are going to carry inventory. They're going to walk in and they're going to drive out the same day, most cases. And I think dealers are trying to set that model up with consumers the same experience. But what I'm saying is I don't think we need it. And I think moving forward, people are going to buy an EV are going to be quite content with. If you don't, then let's just order it, you know, and it'll come in two weeks or whatever it's going to be. What's your thought to that? Do you see, do you, can you see that shift happening? Because I think and sometimes dealers are, you know, can be problematic in helping to promote EVs properly. It's a really good question. Tough I don't, question. I don't know that I have a, a you know, mm -hmm. fully formed opinion uh, on okay. this, but uh, you know, I, I, at the same time, and again, I, I will say, Unifor, uh, we represent not just the assembly side, the parts side, mm -hmm. but we've got you know five, six thousand workers in dealerships across mm -hmm. the country. So okay. they're an important and often overlooked part of this, uh, of good. this, okay. uh, you know, supply base. Here. I'm glad so, I asked the question then. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, that's right. That's yeah. right. And uh, and but I think you know, um, you know, we talked about education. Mm -hmm. And uh, if done right, you know those dealerships are going to be a, a critical piece of that education formula, at least for the for the foreseeable future. Uh, you know, ma making folks understand uh, the operations of the vehicle, feeling comfortable yeah. with the vehicle. So, I, I mean, I look at it that way. But what you're talking about, you know, is like macro trends happening in just the broader <laughs> retail landscape. Yeah. So, you know, I, I I I wouldn't be surprised if we're seeing a transition away from this. Um, but I, I do kind of hold out hope that there's there's added value that these dealerships can provide in, in accelerating the movement, uh, mm -hmm. uh, at least in the short term. Mm -hmm. uh, what happens in the medium to long term, that, that's a good point. And, and your ideas are as good as any I've heard. So, yeah. And some are. There are some dealers which embrace electrification and, you know, they they have they predominantly display and they'll talk about it and yeah. they'll, they'll talk about openly depending on what somebody's needs are uh I, I just think sometimes they get hung up on having to have inventory and there's always this supply and demand issue i mean i don't think you need to have the inventory in those vehicles especially with a generation younger than i'm I, i'm generation uh you know i'm baby boomer so you know the millenniums and all those which are used to online stuff like they don't they don't need to, you know, if they right. have an opportunity to see it or read a review or something, I mean, they're, they're in that boat and that's going to be the next buying, the, the, the buying generation now, you know, with, with that kind of income uh, as they, as they grow up. Um, so it's going to be interesting to see how that plays out, but I'm hoping that yep. that filters down and you're absolutely right. It, and, and also, I mean, at the end of the day, it needs to be, you know, KPIs for the, for the dealers and for the workers. It's got to make sense to them. They've got to be motivated and incentive to do that. If they're not by the company, well, then I get it. They're not going to be talking about EVs if, if it doesn't make them money or whatever, the same way as something else. So it's got to kind of flow down, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, listen, so there's our end music. That means we've gone, we've talked way longer than I think I was planning on it, but it, it, I could talk to you for hours, Angelo. Um, such a bright person and you bring such a unique perspective to this marketplace that I think is truly important. Um, any last words about, you know, the future and, and I know we talked about the job creations and, and, and the jobs, but, you know, quickly, 
Canada is still a very much a fossil fuel industry in a lot of parts of the province. How can we move away from there? And maybe this isn't a qualified response that you can give, but any pointers on that that you see? Yeah, you you, you saved the, the big one for the end, eh? <laughs> yeah, oh, in my a short goodness. two minutes, yeah. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, listen, uh, again, um, uh, uh, this transition uh, is not just, I mean, I talk about it, uh, you know, in the largest sense. Uh, mm-hmm. Addressing climate change is, a, is an existential problem we're going to yeah. have to face. Yeah. And the auto sector and the transportation sector is one sliver of that, an important right. one, but it's going to touch every sector of this economy. And oil and gas... Uh, uh, fossil fuel extraction, mining, uh, you know, mm-hmm. th- these are conversations ongoing. Also, sites of good jobs. Also, places where workers look down the line and uh, and, and are expressing concern. So, uh, you know, again, this transition isn't happening tomorrow. So there, there's time. We can, we can get this right. But a lot of this is going to be uh, looking at what, you know, new sources of energy, uh, you know, are available and how we get uh, skilled workers uh, to transition um, and, uh, and looking at these new opportunities that are available in other sectors of the economy where, where existing knowledge and skills can, uh, can be easily transferable. Um, but at the same time, it, it's making sure that, uh, that we're advocating for good jobs all along the way. It's no good taking someone who's in a, in a really good job with a union contract and saying, well, sorry, that job's gone. And uh, what you're left with is uh, much less than what you've got. You're going to get resistance to that. That's not a strat- That's not a good transition strategy. Right. So workers have to be central to this discussion if we're going to make it happen. And uh, we're confident we can. Excellent. So the future is bright. Then, in your opinion, it's not an easy answer, and there's going to be challenges. But I think the overall, because we we hear so much mixed messaging politically on that landscape, and it's a it's a it's a bantering tool back and forth between all the major parties. But I think in your opinion, for what you said, the future is bright, that there is an opportunity to move and transition to the greener technologies or whatever that. It's just there's going to be some finesse involved. There's going to be a lot of finesse. Uh, <laughs> and we, we have to be optimistic about that. We have no choice. We have no choice. That's a, that's a great response. Well, listen, thank you very much, Angelo DiCara, the Director of Research for Unifor, one of Canada's largest unions here uh, who represent all the auto workers and parts manufacturers and suppliers and a whole bunch of other people. I thank you very much for taking the time. It's been a pleasure, and I would love to follow up with you maybe next year and see how our quasi-predictions that we discussed today come true, whether the crystal ball is cracked or whether it's nice and shiny and we should uh, revisit it. Absolutely. Thanks so much, Ken. This was really enjoyable. Good. I'm glad. Well, thanks for taking the time. Thanks again for listening, folks. You can email me if you have comments. Email at evrevolutionshow at gmail.com. Follow me on Twitter at evrevshow. I'm also on Instagram, evrevolutionshow. And if you uh, have any suggestions for shows, please let me know. Thanks again for listening, and please, everybody stay safe. And until the next time, I'll see you when I see you.